welcome. This is an awesome podcast. This yeah. is one of my favorite ones. <laughs> to the Jeff. It's a lot of whiskey, Jeff. Macalino. Jeff Macalino. 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 Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Hopefully some of you who came by for the uh, last episode are still with me. Uh, <laughs> uh, got quite a spike on what I usually get on uh, YouTube with that episode. Uh, usually I don't put episodes on YouTube, as you may or may not know. Uh, but the one with David Weiss uh, kind of was, there's no doubt it was better if you watched it on YouTube. Because you could actually see what he was showing me. Um, I think I said at the close of last podcast, if you listen to the audio version, you got the open and the close. You didn't get that on YouTube. Uh, I think I said I would talk a little bit more about whether he convinced me or not. I'll just say he did not. However, I am reaching out to a few people about certain things, you know, because I'm interested. So I, I can say he did not convince me, but, um... That doesn't mean he didn't give me questions to look further into, and I always keep an open mind. And speaking of an open mind, that segues perfectly. Good job, Jeffrey. Uh, <laughs> Suzanne Munson is the guest today on the podcast. Uh, she wrote a book called The Metaphysical Thomas Jefferson. I'm going to let you listen and learn a little bit more uh, from her mouth. Uh, as to what um, what that entails, but it is a book that I highly recommend. I can tell you, uh, you know, most people, including myself, honestly, are a little skeptical maybe of the premise. And, uh, you know, not to go too in-depth, but she did uh, get these words from Thomas Jefferson himself in the afterlife, I guess would be the right term. I forget how she worded it. She knows more about this stuff than me. Um, so it's an interesting concept. And she uh, wrote a book uh, based mostly on what uh, she says are his words. Um, the concept is fascinating to me of a medium. And uh, it's doesn't not make sense if you believe in heaven or an afterlife. It, it certainly seems possible. Um, you know, again, I'm, I think I've said this many times, I don't have any beliefs. I'm open to everything and anything. Um, I may have some beliefs, but you know, it, it's, uh, I certainly don't assume that I'm the smartest person in the world who has the answers. I just like to ask questions. And this is, uh, someone whose book, uh, I did actually read, and uh, I uh, I enjoyed the read. And again, she does say, you know, there's three ways to look at it. You can say I made the whole thing up, the medium made the whole thing up, or that she actually was communicating with Thomas Jefferson. And uh, so, I don't know. It's worth a listen, folks. Listen to it. And hey, this podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Geology. This is the award-winning men's skincare company that formulates customized skincare routine just for you. And they use a handful of powerful, proven ingredients that have been trusted by dermatologists for decades. Uh, uh, no matter what you're looking for, acne, dark circles under your eyes, wrinkles, sensitive skin, just not wanting to age, look no further. Take their diagnostic quiz. Their team of dermatologists will design and ship a regimen to your door. It's that simple. Uh, use the link below. I recommend just start with the, the trial of their main four products. They got the Everyday Face Wash, Vital Morning Face Cream, Repairing Night Cream, and Nourishing Eye Cream. Go to Geology. Use the link in the show notes below, please, and order some skincare products to keep your skin nice. And, uh, you know, again, help me help you with your skin care. Um, all right, folks, I'll see you on the flip side. Thank you for uh, listening and uh, enjoy this episode. And then go on and rate it on 
everywhere you get your podcasts and IMDb. All right. All right, everybody, I am now super pleased to welcome Suzanne Munson to the Jeff McAlino podcast. How are you, Suzanne? I'm fine, Jeff. Thanks. Good, good. Uh, I, uh, despite what many in my audience uh, might believe about me, I can read, and I did read your book, uh, and I enjoyed it greatly. So uh, the book is uh, The Metaphysical Thomas Jefferson. Um, and yes, let's, let's kind of dive right into that. Um, for, the, for the listener who has not listened to the book, first of all, I'll put the Amazon link in the description so you can go buy it. Uh, it's a very good read, uh, very digestible. Again, if I can read it, you can read it. That's general rule of thumb around here. Uh, so, um, but for the listener who hasn't read the book, what would you... I guess, what would be your elevator pitch as far as uh, the basic idea behind it? Well, the uh, premise is if you could talk with Thomas Jefferson from his present place in spirit, what questions would you ask? And um, I asked a number of questions through a very experienced, respected medium. I did not hear Mr. Jefferson himself but uh, I very carefully, I had my laptop going all the while. Um, and there are only three ways to look at the book. Um, one is uh, I made it up <laughs> and um, I have recordings to prove that I'm the one asking the questions, not providing the answers. The second option is the medium made it all up out of whole cloth. And this medium lives a thousand miles away from me. I've never met her in person. We always work by phone and I had worked with her with family members before, which I can go into later how I got to that point in my life of trusting a medium. Uh, but I did feel that she was a trusted person. However, she is not an historian and she didn't like history in school. She majored in elementary education. She knew very little about Thomas Jefferson. So I think we can probably discount that she came up with all of these very profound statements that came through. And so the third option, the third way of looking at it is that we are actually hearing from somebody on the other side who is presenting himself as Thomas Jefferson. And in the beginning of the book, I say, you decide, you know, um, if you can't accept the premise of mediumship, of talking with someone on the other side, then read it anyway, because the words are powerful, the words are very important. And um, no matter who, who wrote them, whether I wrote them or the medium or some spirit out there, they're, it's powerful. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I wrote uh, an Amazon review of your book earlier today. And that last part, I put something to that effect in there is, believe it's coming from Thomas Jefferson or not, you should read the words in this book. Yes. Uh, because yes. I, it, it definitely was, uh, uh, some of the times I'm like, boy, this could be Thomas Jefferson or me, the way this, <laughs> right. Thomas Jefferson was uh, speaking about certain topics um, that uh, was very good to see in writing. Uh, because it aligns very much with how I uh, believe he would see things uh, as yes. I, I've always, I'm not the biggest historian, but Thomas Jefferson from a political philosophy uh, perspective has always kind of been the founding father that I like to think I, I identify most closely with as far as my beliefs and, you know, states rights not a you know overpowering federal government all that stuff and also and you did touch on this in the book or or he said it through the medium however you want to say it um he very much likes to engage in conversation about this stuff with people who he might disagree with and uh you could tell he definitely respected people who would engage in conversation with him, even if he didn't agree with them. That's kind of what I took uh, out of the part when he was, you were asking specifically about other historical figures like John Adams and, 
Alexander Hamilton and all of them. Um, even uh, who was a Thomas Paine, who I thought he would seem to have a lot in common with, didn't seem to speak too highly of him because he didn't seem like he really was a guy who would engage in the, the, the back and forth kind of uh, philosophical discussions that, that Thomas Jefferson seems to really enjoy. Um, yes. One of the questions, and I'll, I'll uh, have to say, uh, as part of the premise, uh, if you could talk with Thomas Jefferson, what questions would you ask? Um, after I decided to work on the book, I went on Amazon and I, and I'll answer your question in just a minute because you're right about what he said about that. But I uh, went on Amazon and I got the names of uh, maybe a dozen authors of recent books or living authors of books about Thomas Jefferson. Some of them were younger, some of them were older. And I tried to get the email addresses of these individuals and those who were, were attached to universities, I could easily find their email. So I sent out a blast and I said, uh, I did not tell them what the true nature of my project or they never would have participated. But I said, I had taught some Jefferson history at the college level. And I said, as a class project, and I've taught at the Chautauqua Institute and at the university level, I said, just as a future class project, I wonder if you would respond to this question. If, if you could talk with Jefferson, what questions would you ask? So uh, eight very kindly responded to me, again, not knowing that I was going to try to access the metaphysical Jefferson. But, uh, and, and so I used a lot of their questions and one of their, I used all their questions as a matter of fact, and then I had some of my own because I wouldn't have thought about some of their questions. And particularly this one, this question was, what interested you most or what gave you the most pleasure? And he said, engaging in conversation with interesting people, having a back and forth give and take. And that was, uh, he was complimentary, particularly about Ben Franklin in this regard. He said that, and that Ben had a way of engaging people with a different point of view. And he would ask questions and he would always have a nice, pleasant tone of voice. He would never be confrontational. But at the end, he probably would have led him down the primrose path to start thinking about thinking in the same way that he did, simply because he, he was a diplomat and obviously very clever and very, very smart. But he had a very nice way about him. And uh, he was one of, uh, Franklin was one of several founding fathers that I asked uh, Mr. Jefferson to comment about. Yeah, and I, I liked reading that too, because talking about favorite historical figures, Ben Franklin is... The answer to any time someone says, if you could have dinner with anyone alive or dead, it, it's definitely Ben Franklin. I think you're, I almost think you're crazy if that's not in your top three. <laughs> um, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's almost a shame that people like Jefferson and Franklin weren't around when podcasts existed because they would have the best <laughs> podcast probably of anyone sure. if you think about it from that perspective, just engaging with different people about different topics. Well, John Adams wrote something to the man that I wrote my first book about, George Wythe, who was Thomas Jefferson's most important teacher. And, he, and they, were, uh, they served in the Continental Congress and they helped uh, George Washington as much as they could in the Congress with, with the revolution. And so Adams wrote to Wythe, he said, um, oh, the ancient sages, all the people in the world who've lived up until this point would love to be alive now at this point in history, because we have a unique opportunity to start anew, to break our bonds with the old world and start fresh with something untried, really, a democratic republic. The Greeks for a short period of time had a democracy and the Romans for a short period of time had a republic, but it had never been tried on a large scale with a large number of people for a long period of time. And that's what a handful, and I, and I mean literally a handful of founding fathers were able to do at that point in history. And Jefferson does say, uh, a lot of people thought that he was an atheist or a deist, but he does say from his place in spirit that they were divinely inspired. They were guided by forces that are greater than ourselves. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, and uh, 
it's I you wish that someone like Thomas Jefferson were around today to try to guide us out of the mess uh, that that we're in. Uh, well, I did ask him that. Yeah. Um, the, the first chapter is about government, because that's what I write about with the founding fathers, the government that they provided for us. And so that, that's probably the longest chapter and probably one of the most negative chapters. Mm-hmm. And um, so finally, I said, um, can't you think of anything positive to say? And I said, um, you know, is there any hope for us? And I said, well, what would you do if you were president or if you were in Congress? And he said that he could do nothing or very little right now if he came in immediately as president because there would not be enough of a following for what he would want to achieve. He said that he might come in in, as a congressman, uh, but only if he could surround himself with similar people who were there to serve the people, not to serve themselves and the special interests. Um, He says that he walks the halls that once were sacred in Washington, and he is dismayed. And he's calling for a a revolution, but it's not of the bloody sort, he said, it's a revolution of integrity. And he said, if he came into Congress, he would try to form a circle of integrity. And that's what people need to be doing right now. Uh, I know a couple of them, I think, but they're in the minority. Mm -hmm. And he said, as soon as you throw your hat in the ring, as soon as it hits the air, it's infected. He said, it's like a thicket. You try to find your way through, but there are thorns, mazes everywhere in Washington when you try to achieve something good for the people and not for the special interests. But he said he he thought there is some hope for the future that he whispers in the ears of the new people in Congress who haven't become tainted by the system uh, or not feathering their nests to the greatest extent as some of the older members are. And uh, that he, he does try to whisper in their ears and remind them of their vows. And that if there is a circle of integrity that's large enough in Congress, then one of them would rise to run for president, you know, maybe himself, maybe somebody else. But that is not gonna happen in, anytime soon. Right now, there's not the great circle of integrity that needs to be uh, formed in Congress. Right. and the. The sad thing is, you know, I, I believe someone with integrity like Thomas Jefferson, even if he started to try to get into, you know, running for office, I think he'd end up backing away and saying this whole, you know, this whole thing is poison. I'll, I'd rather I, I'd rather do a podcast that, that I try to spread the truth. I, I know he mentioned the Internet being kind of our our best uh, uh yeah, goodness, I'm, I'm slipping on the word I'm thinking of, but the media obviously is corrupt. The government messaging is obviously corrupt. The internet, they can try to control it, but it's too big for them to even control That's fully. Right. That's one of the surprising things. He, I used to have this idea that he died in 1826, and I used to have this fantasy. I really did have this fantasy. It's really funny that I would... Uh, somehow get him out of his place in 1826, put him in my car, maybe clean him up a little bit and drive him around the university that he founded, the University of Virginia. And I would say, look at all these women, look at all these people of color, look at all these people from Asia. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? But the fact is he is very current with our current events. He knows way more than I know about what's going on at UVA and in Congress. And, um, And so he uses modern terminology, and this is why some people think that I wrote the book, um, because they think that's strange that he should be just using quaint language, 18th century language. Uh, His language is formal in places, but he will use, you know, phrases like, he calls college athletics cash cows, which I thought was pretty funny. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he said the internet is, um, he said that the media, um, our media newspapers or TV uh, networks have been bought out by um, wealthy interests, special interests, and they're trying to control the narrative. He says there's a very small group of people who want, literally want to control the world, which I thought was very strange. I don't, I've had trouble believing that, but maybe it's true. Um, that they are like puppet masters behind the scenes, 
manipulating everybody and they're unseen. We don't know who they are really, some of them. But we know right now some very, very wealthy people are buying up media mm -hmm. and they do have agendas. Um, so he said that the internet, they were trying to control the internet, but it had gotten away from them. He said, truth will out, truth will out. And um, he said, eventually uh, the internet will be a source of freedom. It, it, of course, we all know there's bad stuff on the internet as well, but there's also a lot of good information there. It's just like the printing press. The printing press runs off pornography as well as the Bible, you know, so. right. Same with the internet. And, uh, but he said that that is the one area that they are having great difficulty controlling. No, and thank goodness there is one area they're having difficulty controlling. Yeah. Um, to, uh, so um, I wanna go more into Thomas Jefferson, but let's, uh, let's jump back a step to how you got into, you know, dealing with a medium in the first place and uh, how you, came to trust the process because uh, I think that's an important part of things as well is you know what the I don't know much about that aspect of it aside really from what I read in the beginning of your book <laughs> so right. I don't know if you want to walk through that a little bit sure um, well I guess that journey began in uh, 2013 with the death of my husband Ned and um, I would go outdoors and I would look at the stars and uh, I, I wasn't getting anything, just crickets, you know, I, I wanted to hear from him or get some kind of sign, which I never got. And um, so six months later, I went to a write, writer's retreat up in the country in Virginia. And uh, some of the published authors were asked to put their books out for others to read. And so there was a book uh, that I saw called Friends in High Places. And it was written by an, an amateur medium, a ghostbuster. I thought that was pretty funny, friends in high places. And so her name was Katie and she was my sweet mate. And I was still really missing my husband dreadfully. And so I said, Katie, do you, you're a medium. She said, well, yeah, I'm amateur medium. She said, you can do it yourself. You can teach yourself how to do it. And I said, well, I have no idea how, how I could go about that. But would you try to access my husband? So she got a yellow notepad and went in her room came back a half hour later and described him perfectly. So I went home, told my children all about it. Of course, they were in, incredulous. <laughs> and um, they still have their doubts about things, but um, I'm gonna bring them over one day. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so I belong to a group called the Institute of Noetic Sciences. It was formed by astronaut Edgar Mitchell. And they have chapters all over the country, all over the world. And the rich, I live in Richmond, Virginia, and our chapter is very active, and we have good speakers. So we had a speaker, Irene Kendig, uh, oh, maybe nine months after I lost my husband. And she had written a book um, called Conversations with Jerry, and seven others I thought were dead. And she had used, worked with this medium, her name is Jana Anna, she lives in Indiana, uh, to do these seven readings. And and uh, the author was was a skeptic. She she entered the project very skeptical but after she had gotten all these readings from her mother and others and friends she was convinced that she was getting the real deal she was hearing from the real people who were just have their same personalities we don't lose our personalities when we drop our bodies we you know we go on in a higher form of energy but we're still the same people um we're, we still learn a lot you know we're still learning and mr jefferson had a lot to learn even about race and slavery and a lot of things that he acknowledged. He had a lot about those things after he left in 1826. So anyway, um, I thought, well, if, and this book won a, some national and international awards. And I thought, well, if that book had credibility and the medium had credibility, maybe I'll call. So I finally got up enough nerve. It was a strange thing for me to do. And I made an appointment with her and uh, that was, I guess, in uh, 2013 or 2014, sometime. And, um, and I asked for my late husband, and he came through. I asked for my mother and father and some friends who had died, and each of their personalities came through in great detail that uh, somebody in Indiana who doesn't know me could never make up. 
Um, so I began to have sessions maybe twice a year um, with um, the uh, medium. And, um, and I had a lot of confidence in her. And so I asked her if, um, if she ever channeled historic figures. And she said that she hadn't, but I didn't give her a clue. That was a long time ago. Um, before each reading with me, she gives me a reading about how I'm being seen from the other side. So in the fall of 2019, she um, said, you're being seen from your guides and the forces on the other side as a metaphysical historian. So I wrote that down because I, I write down everything that comes through on a yellow notepad because I don't want to go back and listen to the recordings, you know, a year later that it's just too much. So, but I have the notes and I could quickly look at those five years later. Anyway, so I wrote that down. I didn't do anything about it. And then a couple of months later, I had a reason to have another reading with her. And she said, you're being seen on, on the other side as somebody who's writing down very important things. You're being seen as a scribe, writing down very important things from the past for people in the present. So I wrote that down, didn't do anything about it. And um, then I started thinking, well, I seem to be getting some kind of message here. Maybe I should think about it. So I said, well, if I can, if I can access regular people and have confidence in that, why can't I access somebody famous? You know, what about Thomas Jefferson? Because I'd already written a book about him, about his youth and his relationship with his mentor, George Wythe. That book is called Jefferson's Godfather. And it's rated five stars on Amazon, by the way. <laughs> Do you buy it? Um, I, as it turned out, I had, well, I don't want to get into reincarnation. That's another subject. But um, um, so I had confidence in this medium. And so um, I called her. I didn't tell her in advance that I, who I wanted to speak to. So she said, what do you want to do today? And I said, um, I want to speak to Thomas Jefferson. And so she didn't miss a beat. She brought him in. I think on the other side, what I've learned, I've learned a lot about the other side. After my husband died, I, I went on a journey to learn as much as I could, what we do and what the purpose of everything is. And um, so, um, uh, so she uh, brought him through. I think on the other side, there's like some kind of green light um, they know when we're thinking about them. And um, one time I did access Thomas Jefferson when I was writing the George Wythe book. Um, very briefly, I wanted his opinion about Wythe. I got a couple of paragraphs, which I massaged so I could use them in a real history book. But anyway, he said in the beginning, he said, I've, I've been waiting for this. Like he knew that I was been writing about him, thinking about him quite a lot for that first book, which was pure history, not meta metaphysical. Anyway, so I think he was waiting for me, you know, he, he was there waiting. Um, and so I said, do we have, um, I'm thinking about right, editing this book with you and asking you some questions. Uh, do you wanna participate with me in this? And he said, well, I think you're coming from a good place. Uh, I think your heart is in the right place. In other words, I'm undertaking the project not to get rich or famous, but because I think it, the work needs to be done. And I believe that it's one of the first, it's not the first, but I believe it's one of the first books in a new genre, which I think we'll see more of in the future. And that's called metaphysical history. Um, there have been some books where a few uh, famous people were channeled, but they, as far as I know, they never got anywhere much. And, um, and I want this book to be read by a lot of people. Uh, but again, I didn't write it to get rich or famous. I wrote it because it, it needed to be done, in my opinion. I just had a nudge. I always listen to my nudges from the other side. If they're good, they're always usually about good things to do. So I always, I always listen to my nudges and, you know, I obey. <laughs> so I got to work on it. And that was um, March of 2020. We all know what things were like then COVID, uh, who was president, what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I uh, had eight or nine sessions, which um, went through the summer. I think the last session was the end of July, 2020. And then I 
divided the material into chapters by subject matter. So I have a chapter on government, chapter on his opinion about other founding fathers, the media, foreign policy, use of the military, religion and spirituality, race and slavery, and then just some random questions that we wanted to ask. So is your understanding, and just to hit on one thing you said, I hope a lot of people read the book as well, because again, I the, the message inside of it is amazing. Um, and I won't go too in depth to spoil it, uh, but the, his thoughts on the military was like, oh, this is what I say all the time. People don't like when I say it, <laughs> but we, we won't spoil that for, for anyone. <laughs> but as, right. as, as far as the communication part goes, um, and I don't know if this is something you, you maybe asked in the beginning, but just is your understanding of it is basically when you your physical being dies your spirit ascends and i use the word ascends maybe not literally but ascends to a higher plane where you still exist just not at, at the physical level is that kind of That's your right. understanding okay well i think people have wanted to believe that you know for thousands of years and it's embedded in most religions. But um, in recent years, I, I, when my husband died, I wanted to know the answers, but I did not go to religion. Uh, that was the last place I wanted to go. And uh, although I, I'm very familiar with what religious, religion says, and, and a lot of it is true, things that are in the Bible, many of them are, are true. They are the way things are. But um, uh, so I uh, went as close to science as I could, and um, I read books by medical doctors and PhD researchers, psychiatrists, and I started simply with the near-death experience. And anybody who is not reading a lot about the near-death experience today or listening to lots and lots of accounts on YouTube Oh, there are hundreds and hundreds of near-death experience accounts, which are fascinating on YouTube. But people should be convinced that, yes, um, our body is just a shell. You know, we leave it. And the out-of-body and uh, the people who have a near-death experience, let's say they technically die on the operating table. And then through the miracles of modern medicine, they're brought back five minutes later. And... Um, but in that five minutes, time is very different on the other side. They have, you know, very profound encounters with the divine, many of them. And, um, and, and they look down at their bodies and, and it's like a strange little lump down there that they don't want to return to. They never want to come back to this planet. This is a very hard planet to live on. The hardest, one of the hardest. And, um, but anyway, yeah, there, science and spirituality are merging. There are medical doctors, PhD researchers, psychiatrists who are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, and they have books on the subject that are uh, highly credible, that, that we are not just our bodies, our bodies. It's like um, a radio is, radio waves are not the box, you know, the box is just the receiver. Right. The radio waves are something else. And that's kind of like the way we are. Our body is just a box uh, that we leave. And uh, we're, it's, we're all creatures of energy. Our bodies are very dense energy. But our, our consciousness, I don't like to use the word soul, but it, um, our consciousness is, uh, uh, consists of higher energy. But, um, but we do have a spiritual body. And um, everybody's younger on the other side. Everybody's about 35. So when my husband was seen by the medium, you know, he was at his best <laughs> and um, in his best attires, navy blazer and khakis and good so, haircut. So the medium can actually see the physical embodiment as well, not just. Yes, the, the, spirit, the, spirit, or... the spirit body, the spirit body. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and that that was I, I don't I not that this relates to anything, but I was thinking, you know, weird side 
thought of, you know, what happens to people who undergo dementia late in life and, and stuff like that. But I think that kind of answers the question is that kind of yes. stuff doesn't affect your spiritual body when you do move on. No, we are made whole. Um, if you die sick, you're made whole um, quickly. And also blind people who have a near-death experience uh, encounter, have a, a sighted experience when, when they leave their bodies, have an out-of-body experience. They can describe things that, that would be impossible for a blind person hmm. to see from a, an, a perspective of 40 feet up in the air in a hospital seeing everything that's going on and people rushing around and what the equipment looks like somebody's wearing a brown outfit that kind of thing then they come back into the body and you know they're blind again but they've had this profound experience interesting and then i mean so that would make sense just thinking about all of it together that as far as talking about, you know, critique around Thomas Jefferson having modern day vocabulary, well, he'd obviously be wanting to monitor what's going on and, you know, stay in tune um, with with what's going on. So, I mean, especially a guy like him, I, I would think naturally would have a, a pretty current vocabulary and kind of be up to date on current events because that's of course, that's what he'd, he'd love to do. <laughs> yes. He used the, a modern term ego quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Ego is not used in his day. But he says that ego is getting in the way of, um, of a lot of people who have power and authority. Um, it's not about serving the people. It's about serving self for a lot of the people who are in charge. But I will um, just quote a few things that he said about government uh, mm -hmm. from the book. Um, I said, uh, again, government is very important to me. I, I write about what the founding fathers wanted for us. And I have written three books, including this one on that theme. Um, so my question was, first question that I asked him was, what is your greatest concern about American government today? And the answer was corruption, self-interest and conformity. Um, he would have agreed with the comedian Robin Williams, who said congressmen should wear sponsor jackets like the NASCAR drivers so we can see who owns them. Mm -hmm. I, think he, I think he would agree with that joke. Um, he said many in Washington have been uh, compromised by wealth and power to the point that big money interests have become paramount over the interests of average American citizens. And he said, our grand experiment as a democratic republic, a government of the people, by the people, for the people, has gone awry. He said the founding fathers left good building blocks for government. We had them mostly assembled when I departed. He said, looking at those building blocks now, I see that they have been reassembled in ways that we did not intend. The structure has lost its power, its purpose, and is very far from the original design. We are seeing chaos at times now, but this is a purge. And he calls for a new revolution by the people, but not of war, not the bloody sort, but of integrity. He said it's essential for those in Washington and in state legislatures to form circles of integrity in order to achieve the necessary reforms. He also says that he wishes that some, that everyone in power and everyone, as a matter of fact, would sit down with the original blueprints, the constitution, the bill of rights, Declaration of Independence and study them for present applications. Now he is still the revolutionary. He's still in every reading that I had with him, there was the constant refrain, freedom, freedom, freedom. You're losing your freedom. You're, you know, you don't think you are, but you are. Um, you know, it's like the frog in the lukewarm water <laughs> um, doesn't know what's happening until the heat boils up and it's too late. But um, so he said, we've allowed this to happen. He said, there's been a slow and steady loss of our freedom. And we've allowed this to happen by complacency and by dumbing down of our education systems. Mm -hmm. It's, and actually a lot of those things you read, I was looking at my copy while you were doing it and I, I had highlighted 
a lot of those things. Um, yeah. it, it's uh, one thing that struck me that he would have a big problem with is I certainly think he would look at the political landscape and say, well, I can't be either of these, meaning Republican or Democrat. I don't think either party would accept him necessarily for his beliefs. The, the Republicans, I don't know if they'd accept him for their, his thoughts on the military. The Democrats, his thoughts on uh, overreach of the federal government and, you know, the education system. And heck, his attack on the media wouldn't be met well by the media that mostly leans left. Um, so he would kind of be a he would he would have to be a, a third party or an independent, I would think, to even try to come back in this system. And I believe he was of the belief. I don't know that this was in the book. I know George Washington was big time about not establishing political parties. Um, yes. To to avoid what we have right now, which is, in in my opinion, I think Thomas Jefferson might agree, it's controlled opposition. They're all kind of they may have some different fundamental stances on things. But in the end, I think their biggest goal is to accumulate power for all of them and uh, maybe make the people on the battlefields, maybe not a good uh, metaphor to use, but divide us <laughs> so that we give all their all the power to them while we quibble about things that they really don't even care about that much. Um, exactly. So I. I I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I, I feel like that would be one of the biggest hurdles with him is he'd be like, I can't be either one of these red or blue things. I need to do my own thing. Yes. Well, parties have morphed into something that he would not have recognized. There were political parties in his day. They had just started, but basically they were about uh, the fundamental ideas about government. Jefferson was a state's rights person, mm -hmm. mainly because he feared an overarching uh, central power. Uh, and he liked to diffuse power among the states um, as a protection for the people. Uh, then there were those, the Federalists, who wanted a strong uh, central government. Uh, so what we ended up with was kind of, in my opinion, sort of a compromise. But in those days, it was, it was a pure debate, although they got into personalities. They, you know, their politics were almost as just about as nasty as ours. Jefferson did some nasty things to John Adams, and um, which later came around to bite him. Um, freedom of the press bit Jefferson, although he believed in it. Um, an unhappy person that he had hired to uh, dish the dirt on Adams when they were running both against each other, wanted Jefferson to appoint him to a government post and Jefferson didn't. So he turned on Jefferson and he wrote, he um, took Jefferson out of the closet for having a, um, a slave mistress. And um, so Jefferson was bitten by the freedom of press that he championed, but, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. Right. Um, uh, so I think he would be dismayed by the by both parties right now. They've gotten so far away from just fundamental principles. And um, probably he would be an independent and just try to have a pure, simple, easy to understand agenda. I think he's for term limits, for example. Right. Um, not because he likes them. He doesn't like them. He feels that worthy people should stay in there if they're worthy. But as it turns out, um, a lot of unworthy people are there because there are no term limits. Yeah, no, I, I would, uh, I would love to uh, see what. <laughs> this is a half joking idea, but I've, I've often said the government would be best if every political position was actually just done like jury duty. You, oh, hey, sorry, guy, you're, you're, you're doing two years in Congress. Sorry, <laughs> you, right. you get two years off your job. You go to Washington and. You'll be in and out in two years, but that's, you, sorry. Oh, sorry, you're going to be the president the next four years. Well, I know you're a plumber from Missouri, but your number right. got drawn. <laughs> um, well, some people are saying, you know, there are qualifications for being an architect, a plumber, an electrician. You have to pass certain tests and be skilled in something. And there ought to be, you know, a course that, that congressmen should take in the Constitution and um, ethics. 
and uh, what you need to do to be a good congressperson or senator. As far as I know, there's no such course that is required. No, it seems like uh, a lot of times the person who shouts the loudest and gets the most media attention is the one who gets to gets to call the shots. Um, yeah, it's a, it's unfortunate, uh, and I'm I'm sure he would think that. You you did bring up too, and this is kind of anytime I I talk to people and bring up you know favorite historical figures, and again Thomas Jefferson always comes up for me. The critique is always obviously about slavery and about uh, uh, Sally Hemings, I believe her name yes. was mm -hmm. yes. uh, or is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I did, I like that you addressed this head on in the book and didn't, you know, skirt around it. Um, it was, it was quite possibly the, I mean, it was a very interesting portion of the book to read, especially um, with the way things played out. Um, I was unaware, uh, one thing that shocked me, um, and again, I'm not a historian, uh, how much debt Thomas Jefferson was in. Uh, and that's something that, again, I, I don't wanna make excuses for, for him not releasing his slaves, uh, but, uh, or freeing his slaves, probably better nomenclature, but um, it made a lot more sense when I, read that and found out a little more about, you know, the debt he inherited from his uh, father-in-law uh, and all that stuff. Uh, it was very interesting because I always honestly just kind of assumed he was pretty well off and I was obviously not correct in that regard. Yes. Um, was there something did in speaking, you know, through the medium, did it strike you as a very authentic regret of his, the way he handled things, even though, again, he he still did a lot of good things, even though that doesn't necessarily <laughs> correspond to the the bad. Um, it's a very th weird thing to talk about, given that, the, again, how things were then as opposed to now. Yes. Uh, well, he honestly thought that he was a good master and that they were better off under him than being let loose. Uh, Virginia was clamping down on um, on the owner's ability to free slaves during his Jefferson's last 20 years. And um, if you freed your slaves, they had to leave family and everything they loved in Virginia and go to another state. And it was very dicey for a freed slave because if he went to New York, somebody could just pick him up off the street and sell him down to Mississippi if they wanted to be quite an easy thing, even if a person had papers. So um, being a freed slave, they, the, the powers that be in, in the legislatures made it harder and harder and harder for people to free their slaves. It wasn't, wasn't an easy, quick thing that, that somebody could do. And he honestly thought that he was a good master. He thought he treated his slaves better than others. Um, but he acknowledges that he was a product of his time that if, if he had been born now with our consciousness, he would have totally different outlook on people of color. Uh, but he was conditioned to believe in a hierarchical uh, scheme of things in the universe with white males at the top, uh, white females considerably below that, and people of color way below that. Um, and that was just the way he was conditioned and he um, kind of apologizes for it, but he also says, you know, that's just the way it was. And I should have questioned it. So I said, well, are you, he said he, he could not imagine the workers on his farm, on his plantation, ever going to his university that he founded in 1819. And, um, and I said, well, are you happy with the people of color? Are you happy for them that they're at UVA now? He said, yes, I'm, I'm very happy, I'm, I'm glad to see it. And he said, but it took me a while to get there, which led me to believe that after he died in 1826, he still had some things to learn. And he's, he watched the Civil War, I'm sure, and he watched Reconstruction and he watched Martin Luther King and he watched all 
the same things that we've watched in the last 50 years and his attitudes have changed. Um, I just thought, poof, we go to heaven and you know we're all angels, but apparently that's not the case. We're still, we still very much have our personalities. We mellow on the other side, but we still have our personalities. It's a, and this is kind of a weird off topic question that just hit me while you were, while you were describing it is, uh, you know, you, you pass on again, you, you go to the afterlife in heaven. Do you, do you think, I mean, is there also a hell where, you know, the first, I don't know why this popped into my head, but it, I, I guess pretty obvious. Yeah, well, is it, Adolf, can you communicate with Adolf Hitler, or is he in a place oh, oh. <laughs> beneath, beneath the jail where you can't you can't oh. get to his spirit? The, I don't that know. Is if that is a really good question. I never thought about that. I don't think you can get to those people. I I never believed in hell, but um, uh, I always thought it was just people trying church trying to scare people. Mm-hmm. But um, honestly, you, I've I listened to a lot of near-death experiences and I've read a lot of uh, accounts of near-death experiences by medical doctors and PhD researchers. And there's a certain percentage, um, maybe 10% or less of people who have um, an out-of-body experience who have a truly hellish experience just at, as it has been described in the worst kind of way. Now, I don't know whether that's a scare tactic, you know, to get you crying Jesus to get out of there, because that's what they all do when they get out of there. <laughs> but I don't know about the ones who don't ask for help, you know, what happens to them. But uh, it's pretty scary, actually. Um, I try not to think about it, but I am interested in it. I do listen to the hellish accounts occasionally, just because they um, the people swear they're real. They, they, they were not hallucinating. They actually went to hell, and there really is a hell. But I never wanted, you know, I never wanted to really believe that. But, but uh, that's what they're saying. Hmm. Yeah, that's it. Well, uh, by that token, I would assume that Thomas Jefferson is probably one of a one of the few presidents you might be able to still actually communicate with uh, through <laughs> a medium, because I don't think many of the <laughs> many of the other ones ended up in a good place personally. <laughs> well, uh, some people would say have said to me, uh, "Well, you've done this." work on Thomas Jefferson, uh, why don't you do Abraham Lincoln or some of the others? And I said, well, I admire Abraham Lincoln greatly, but I know a lot about the Civil War. I grew up in Virginia. I know a lot about Abraham Lincoln. And that is a period of history that does not interest me as much as the revolutionary period. And um, so, um, but I don't plan to do another metaphysical book. I I kind of, I don't know. I just wait for the spirit to move me to do whatever writing I'm going to do. And right now I'm writing a, a straight history book. It's called um, America's First Leadership Crisis, 1776, and how yeah. there were just a handful of founding fathers and not many any qualified people beyond them to run a big new government or court system, everything brand new, and how George With. Uh, taught the first legion of our leaders after the founding fathers. So that that's a book and that's straight history. Um, and, and, and I honor those founding fathers. And I imagine they're all in a good place. I don't think any of them are in hell, but what I have learned is that um, there is, there's a very dark place for people who don't have love and compassion in their heart and especially a lack of forgiveness. It's essential. And I'm not getting this from Jefferson. I'm just getting it from these other sources that it's really essential to forgive if you want to go on to a better place. Right. Now, I um, uh, one thing, speaking of founding fathers, that uh, obviously, you know, way more about history than, than me or probably most people I've ever spoken to, but I was uh, kind of thrown uh, by... Uh, the way Thomas Jefferson talked about George Washington in the book, because I don't, I don't know if you specifically addressed it as an author, but I had never heard that. Did that kind of catch you? I never guard? heard it either. No. What he said was, um, when I asked him about the founding fathers, he said, people over the years have made frozen icons of us. He said, we were flesh and blood people. 
We had our foibles, we had our faults. We were all bastards in our own ways. He used the word bastards, uh, but then he mellowed a little bit. And so I asked about George Washington first and I was as surprised as you were with what came through. And he used a modern term, term there for Washington. He said that Washington had seen so much blood and gore and guts in two wars, the French and Indian War and the Revolution, that it changed him, that he suffered from what today would be called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And there were times when, and, and Jefferson was in his cabinet and interacted with him. There were times when he didn't think Washington, Washington was accept, accessible, that he, his mind was somewhere else. Uh, but that he would check with Washington on matters of, on military matters or matters of state. And of course, everyone revered what Washington was able to do to pull together this country at the beginning. Um, and then we got to Alexander Hamilton and they were uh, enemies, I guess you could say, uh, opposites uh, politically in their day. But he laughed and he said, um, who would have thought that he would become a song and dance man? <laughs> uh, joking. And, um, and he said um, that maybe where Hamilton is right now, that maybe he's a little bit embarrassed about that and that the play is not, not accurate about a lot of things. But, but Jefferson said, well, if it helps people understand history a little bit better, and if it's an entertainment, people have a good time, maybe that's fine. And then we went on to, um, oh, and then he said, I hope nobody makes a song and dance man out of me. And I said, well, because apparently he hadn't seen the play. I said, well, guess what? You're singing and dancing in the play, you better see it. And um, so then we went on to John Adams and, it was sort of as if Adams was kind of sitting around or kind of listening. And he said, kind of in a kidding way, he said, um, now there's a song and dance man, meaning he was complimenting Adams as having a great heart, a good heart. And also listening to his wife, you know, right. he was one of the few men of his time who actually respected the intellectual capabilities of his wife. Yeah, and speaking of entertainment, I, you never know how accurate, you, you know these things are always over-dramatized, but the series uh, with Paul Giamatti uh, playing John Adams, I don't know if you saw that. but I did, I saw that. His relationship with his wife was, was great, and then I did still love, he and Jefferson didn't see eye to eye on politics, and they battled, but they did then seemed to become extremely close. And, and greatly respect each other. And I love that because that's, I wish their relationship was more like how people actually dealt with each other in this country nowadays. You can have yes. strong opinions and think the other person is wrong or, or dumb or any, it doesn't mean you have to hate each other. You can still find that's common right. ground, respect each other, you know, demonstrate, you know, follow the golden rule. <laughs> Yes, they became very close uh, during Jefferson's last decade or two and exchanged letters about any number of things. And of course, most people know the day they died. Mm -hmm. They each died on July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years after the Declaration of Independence. They willed themselves to live to that day. Yeah, that's so poetic. Yes. <laughs> I mean really with, with those two, uh, those two guys. Um, well, I cannot uh, say enough about the message that's in the book. You know, obviously the, the reader can decide what they believe as far as the medium and, and spirits and all that kind of stuff on their own. Um, but again, regardless, uh, what was relayed to you from the medium was really things that, uh, again, things that more reinforce things that I personally believe, maybe I'm a bit of a cynic, uh, but uh, for people who 
kind of have the blindfold on, I, I wish uh, that they would get a copy of this and read it uh, because I do think it sheds light on a lot of tremendous things. Uh, and uh, again, just kind of addresses the, the philosophy of how this country was founded and uh, how it's wandering down the wrong path for, for quite a bit of time. I guess, depending on how you look at it relatively, but um, Suzanne, um, and I'll link everything in the show notes, but uh, tell, tell my listeners where they can get your books, uh, your website, where they can find you and uh, everything like that. Yes, the, the book we've been discussing is called The Metaphysical Thomas Jefferson. And my name is Suzanne Munson, M-U-N-S-O-N. It's available on Amazon and online Barnes and Noble. Um, those are the two main places where you can get it, uh, hardback, paperback, and Kindle. My uh, first book, uh, which was Straight History, although I, I did a little bit of work with the medium on that, but I, I couldn't use a lot of that in that book because it had, had to pass muster with historians. But uh, the first book is called Jefferson's Godfather, and that's his relationship with his mentor, George Wythe. Um, a lot of people are not aware that Jefferson could easily have gone down the wrong road as a teenager, as an unsupervised college student. And he was very fortunate to have a very good adult role models pick him up and take him on the right path. So that's an interesting book too, Jefferson's Godfather. Yeah, I, I will be uh, checking that one out because uh, I'm a big fan of Thomas Jefferson and this book did not... Uh, dissuade me from my opinion of him whatsoever <laughs> if anything i double down on it so right so thank you for that uh and thank you so much for joining me i had a, a this has been a, a really interesting conversation that's uh definitely opened my eyes to uh a few new ideas and uh that's what it's all about i, I hope thomas jefferson listens to this podcast wherever he is <laughs> yes he, he may very well be doing that and we just keep an open mind Absolutely. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it. Well, that was it. That was the episode. Many thanks to Suzanne Munson for joining me. Uh, I was fascinated by the whole concept. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, make sure you hit that subscribe button and give me a rating, buddy. Love you, man. Uh, I like the idea that Thomas Jefferson, you, this might be Thomas Jefferson's favorite podcast. Just think about that. <laughs> but thank you to Suzanne for coming on. Her book, I, I highly recommend it. Check out the metaphysical Thomas Jefferson. Check out her other book uh, that is out. And then uh, she mentioned another one she's working on. Uh, so check all that out. She's a delightful uh, person to talk to. And uh, again, it, it really is a fascinating idea and concept. And I don't, again, I, I don't know whether I believe it or not, uh, but I like to believe it. Uh, it seems like, you know, awesome as a concept. I mean, I guess. I, I guess I, I'm just thinking now I need to talk to a medium and uh, figure out a way that when I die, the medium can actually communicate with me and just record. And that way there's no interruption on the Jeff McAlino podcast, though they may be solo episodes, I suppose. But I guess she could listen and translate. I don't I don't know. Uh Maybe not the best audio experience, but there is a way that even when I die, this could live on beyond me. Um, <laughs> interesting, uh, interesting concept. And, and one that, again, I not knowledgeable enough to have any idea uh, whether it's real or not. But uh, she, Suzanne is not the first person I've spoken to who has said that they've had success maybe not talking to Thomas Jefferson, but with someone uh, that has passed on that they knew and loved and the medium was able to talk about things that 
there's no way a normal person would know. And, you know, again, that that's, as Dwight Schrute says, that's a common swindler's trick. But uh, shout out to you if you can remember what episode that was in. And if I quoted him correctly, shout out to me. Yay. All right. Uh, keep checking back, folks. We got more episodes coming your way with fun guests and exciting conversations. Uh, go ahead. Do me a favor. This podcast that you're listening to last week was the 19th most popular podcast, comedy podcast, on IMDb. Go there and give me a rating. I, as of last check, was tied uh, with four or five other podcasts as being the top-rated comedy podcast on IMDb. Um, No pressure, but you can rate the podcast 10 stars. And then, as I said in last week's episode... Rate the episodes one by one. Go through. Let me know what you think because, you know, if certain types of guests are more popular than others, then I can shift to, you know, getting guests that you're going to enjoy more. So subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Do me a favor and go subscribe to the gosh darn YouTube channel. The link's in the show notes. Uh, So is my TikTok, my Instagram, my Facebook group, my Twitter. You got to have one of those things. How the heck else did you find me? Um... And rate, again, rate on IMDb. I think all of the links are in the show notes. And if not, just, you know, go on one of the social medias and tell me I'm an idiot. And, you know, if if you can do that, you probably can figure out how to find me on YouTube. Uh, give you a hint. You search my name. Uh, <laughs> all right. Thank you for joining me. I love you all. Uh, and uh, hope you come back for more. Bye.